Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Bethel Baptist. Uh, This morning, we're going to be continuing in our reading in Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse 18. So if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there's a pew Bible in front of you, and you can find this passage on page 2. And if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18, again, page 2 of the Pew Bible. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Please be seated. Morning, everyone. If you're visiting with us, um, my name's Chris McGarvey, and I'm lead pastor here at Bethel. Uh, Glad you're here with us. We'd love to get to know you better. and hope you find our church to be a warm family that would uh, welcome you in and, and love you well. So again, if you're new, um, you may not know, but we're going through a series on Genesis. It's typically what we do is we just study the Bible, um, preach the Bible, because you don't need my opinion. Um, we need to know what God has to say about everything. So we want to be attentive to His Word. And so we're in a series through the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And we just started a few weeks ago, so we're finishing up chapter 2 this morning. So those verses that Greg read are our verses for study this morning. Um, So before we head in there, uh, I don't know if there's any Paul Simon fans out there. Can't say that I'm one of them. Nothing against Paul Simon, but he wrote a song called I Am a Rock, right? Simon and Garfunkel um, sung this one. And some of the words go like this, I am a rock. I'm an island. I've built walls, a fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I am a rock. I'm an island. I am shielded in my armor, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one and no one touches me. I am a rock. I'm an island and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. So there probably is some pain 
and some tears behind that that would make you want to react that way in this world. And certainly there's plenty of pain dished out, and one of the ways to respond to that is obviously to kind of guard yourself against ever getting hurt again. Um, C.S. Lewis from The Four Loves said something similar. He said this, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. That's not what God made us for. He made us because of his love, for his love. With him, with others, which is why, as we head into Genesis 2, it's not good to be alone. So if you're still there, turn to Genesis 2, easy to find, right there, beginning of the Bible. And if, if it's helpful to you to take notes, there's an outline in the bulletin. You'll also see those points up on the screen as we walk through. So point number one, not good to be alone, Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone or by himself, I will make him a helper fit for him. So a friend of mine, um, we used to serve together in Chicago at the church that I was at prior to coming here. His name is Drew Hunter, and he recently wrote a book titled Made for Friendship, The Relationship That Halves Our Sorrows and Doubles Our Joys. Good subtitle. Actually comes from a, a quote by J.C. Ryle. So it's a really good book, and I'm not just saying that because he's my friend. Um, I was actually surprised in reading it how good it was. Not, I mean, he's a really thoughtful guy. That, that could sound like a slam. Um, I knew it would be good, but it was really good. It messed with me. Like it's changing my thinking about things. Um, so anyway, that's the sense in which I mean that. So... Here's one of the things he writes early on as he's commenting on this verse here. The first problem in human history, the first problem on the pages of Scripture, the first problem in any human life was not sin. It was solitude. So everything was good, good, good. We looked at it the first week, chapter 1. It's kind of the wide-angle lens view, and then in chapter 2, things narrow. So everything was good, good, good. But here... Before sin ruined the perfect paradise of Eden, something is not good. Like that should stick out like neon lights blinking. Wait, how can something be not good before the fall? Now, God obviously had more in mind in addressing this issue than creating friendship, okay? 
He obviously, if that was his ultimate goal, he could have created Adam's oldest and bestest friend, you know, whatever his name would be. He chose to create Eve, Adam's suitable complement, and his wife. So we'll talk more about that in a minute. But God didn't have less in mind than friendship. Okay? So God's triune, relational, loving nature couldn't be reflected by a solitary human figure. This not good has importance for all of us, married, single, all of us. So as Tim Keller writes, Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect. Listen to this. Do you think of relationships this way? Friendships this way? Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect, but because he was perfect. The ache for friends is the one ache that is not the result of sin. This is one ache that is part of his perfection. God made us in such a way that we cannot enjoy paradise without friends. God made us in such a way that we cannot enjoy our joy without human friends. And why do you think solitary confinement is the worst of punishments? Why do people go insane from isolation? Or, oddly enough, some people who are isolated and reclusive, they talk to themselves because even there is a weird, distorted reflection of our relationality. It's not good that we should be alone. So the very good in chapter 1 in the creation narrative doesn't come in until both Adam and Eve are on the scene. Now, I'm not sure if Adam was privy to the divine statement here in verse 18. The Lord said, Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. But if he had been, listen, it would have been bad for Adam to respond back to God, oh, it's all good. God, I have you. I've got all I need. I've got you. No, God is the one who determines what is good and evil, what is sufficient and what is deficient. God himself said that Adam, by himself, it's not good that he be alone. And then he acted to change things from not good to very good. So, of course, all of Adam's good and all of our good comes from God, from him and through him and to him are all things, right? But God often gives us his good gifts through other people. So let's make sure. I, 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 I would put myself guilty of this, especially earlier on in my life. Let's not try to be more spiritual than the Bible as far as what we need. So John Stott was a highly respected church leader in England. He died in 2011 at the age of 90. He was single and celibate his whole life. And he said this, One sometimes meets super spiritual people who claim that they never feel lonely and have no need of human friends. For the companionship of Christ satisfies all their needs. But human friendship is the loving provision of God for mankind. Wonderful as are both the presence of the Lord Jesus every day and the prospect of his coming on the last day, 
they are not intended to be a substitute for human friendships. When our spirit is lonely, we need friends. To admit this is not unspiritual, it's human. So listen, to say otherwise is to put yourself in the place where you think you know better than God what is good. And that sounds a whole lot like, I mean, it's got sympathetic vibrations with what ruined everything in the first place. So that being said, we should note that the good of friendship in this fallen world, okay, we'll get to the fall next week, <laughs> it can be hard to obtain, can't it? I mean, how many of you been, have been hurt and burned and backstabbed and frustrated and made attempts? And Friendship is hard in this fallen world. Everything good has been damaged by sin. I don't imagine I would get much pushback on that. But we ought to agree as Christians that this is worth the work because this is God's design. So in the redemption and restoration of what's been lost and broken because of the fall, God leads us into friendship by means of the ultimate befriending. Okay, So he befriended us so that we could be restored to the friendship relationship with him and with others. So let me quote my friend uh, Drew Hunter again. Friendship is the meaning of the universe. You think that's overstated? Listen how he goes on. The cross was not only the greatest demonstration of love, but also a cosmic act of friendship. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13, the cross was history's most heroic act of friendship. What's the purpose of the cross? John 15 says the purpose of the cross was friendship with God. So when we have been befriended by God like this, it enables us, it empowers us, it pushes us to recover, to work to recover the good of friendship. And the church of all places the church of Jesus Christ, the one who died to befriend us, we ought to be filled with rich, loving relationships that this world is longing for and always, you know, just missing. Although, in some ways, sometimes the world does it better than us, which is to our shame, right? So we, we, we ought to work at this by God's grace. So is that a vision important for you? Is it important to you, this kind of friendship? Like, do you see, yeah, like, I want to see the church do that. Do you want this church to do that? Anybody? Like, this would be kind of like audience participation time. Um, so, so, you know, when we walk through this stuff, this is not just, you know, ancient history lesson. This is like, are you going to own this? Am I going to own this? What's it look like? I can't tell you. But before God, you can ask him by his spirit to lead you. What are the baby steps so that I can be participating in a part of cultivating this heavenly friendship culture in the church? If anybody ought to know about friendship, it's Christians because of what Jesus did to befriend us. 
And God is a relational God, and he made us in his image for relationship. And we've got all this grace and these resources in order to live it out. Yeah, it's going to be hard. We're going to mess up. We're going to stumble. But in the church, we can forgive each other, be gracious and understanding because of how gracious and understanding and patient God has been with us. Do you see how the gospel empowers this? So it was not good for Adam to be alone. It is not good for us to be alone. It was important enough for Jesus to lay down his life to make us his friends. It's not going to be easy, but creating this kind of friendship culture is incredibly important. It's right. It's good. It's beautiful. It's worth the effort. So it's not good that the man should be alone. Not good. But... In the flow of the narrative here, Adam didn't quite know his need well enough yet. Seems like that's what God is getting at here. So God set up for him a parade. Okay, point number two, a helper suitable. Verses 19 to 23. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So you can imagine this took a while. You know, the narrative tension is building, right? So took a while. Every beast of the field, every bird of the air... God himself brought each one to Adam to see what he would name them. So as awesome and cool and varied and wonderful are all these creatures that God has made, none of them corresponded to Adam. None was a suitable helper for him. So now Adam is beginning to feel the reality of not good that he be alone. So, verse 21, the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So, I don't know, you know, before the fall, was that painful? Did, was the sleep kind of for anesthetic purposes? I, I don't know, but it It certainly is to make clear that Eve was God's special creation and gift. Adam slept while God worked. You might want to think about that pattern. There are other covenant people who slept and God worked. Okay? We won't trace that rabbit trail. Rabbit down the trail. Okay, so Adam has nothing to do with this. He didn't create her. She is specially formed by the hands of God, just as Adam was from the dust of the ground. So I mentioned a couple weeks ago when we looked at chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, about being made in God's image, that Genesis exalts the value and dignity of women above other ancient Near Eastern creation stories. This, This stuck out the way that the woman was exalted. And this is another pointer to that same truth that she's made specially by God. So it's easy to appreciate Matthew Henry's, he's got kind of an endearing devotional speculation here. I'm not sure this is 
what God was thinking, but I think you can appreciate this. Um, He said that the woman was not made out of Adam's head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. So this is a holy moment. Can you imagine? It's almost like God the Father is the father of the bride. And he's bringing her up the aisle to her waiting husband. He's got to wake him up first. Don't take that too far, okay? (laughs) So after all those animals and birds were paraded, none was a suitable companion to go to sleep. And then God wakes you up only to feast your eyes on his special creation just for you, just like you, yet different from you. No wonder he wrote a poem. (laughs) So Adam waxes poetic here. First recorded words by man, only recorded words from Adam before the fall. But look at verse 23. Then the man said, this at last, after all the parade, you know, At last is bone of my bones, rib, flesh of my flesh, covered up the place with flesh. She shall be called woman, or in Hebrew, isha, because she was taken out of man, Hebrew, ish. So it's funny that our English words actually mirror the same little wordplay that's present in Hebrew. Isha and ish, woman and man, even male and female. So... Eve is of the same stuff as Adam. The woman is not named Eve until the next chapter, but Adam names her Isha here, identifying her with himself. He's Ish, she's Isha. So she alone is the suitable complement to him. She alone is like him. They are equals. Again, the dignity is significant here. Um, The equality is intended. So together, they are in the image of God, and together they reflect the image of God. They're equals, and they're different, which is why they're complementary with an E, not with an I, not giving a compliment, but complementary, okay? So she's made as Adam's helper is the language, a helper fit or suitable, corresponding to him. So helper Now we're talking about manhood and womanhood and roles, which in our world is not a welcome conversation in in a lot of circles. So if you chafe at that language, those roles of headship and helper, I mean, if it sounds to you like Adam is superior and that Eve is servile and inferior with that language, please be careful. You are importing the effects of the fall back into God's original good design, okay? So this role does not imply that Eve is inferior. Do you know one of the reasons why we know that? Not only the equality that's present in chapters 1 and 2, but also the word helper is used elsewhere in the Bible. And guess who it's used of? 
God. So God is referred to as Ezra, okay? Ezer is helper language, okay? So many of you are familiar with Psalm 46. Love that psalm. The first verse goes like this. God is our refuge and strength, a very present Ezra in trouble, a very present help. So that's the same word here, helper fit for him, one which corresponds to him, facing him as a compliment. She compliments him and helps him in the mission that God gave to them. So remember their original calling to rule, to both of them, to rule and subdue, to cultivate and keep, to spread the glory of God through the earth as they procreate and multiply. Adam, you know, Adam's going to need some help for that. Okay? So God made a helper suitable for the mission, for the calling God had given to them to rule and subdue and all of that. So bearing children is certainly a part of her complementary helping role, but it's not limited to that. Okay? So together, they're going to carry out all of that mission that's laid out in chapter 1. So headship and helper roles are God's good design before the fall. The problem is not with the original design. The problem is, understandably, a result of the terrible distortions and the misrepresentations of that good design in our fallen world. Okay, we're going to consider that more next week because we see it immediately impacting their relationship in chapter 3 when they eat the fruit. And it has, obviously, vertical implications, but it has horizontal repercussions as well. Okay, but for this morning, we need to acknowledge that part of our problem is our desire to call God's good design into question. We, again, want to determine what's good, which is what caused everything to go bad in the first place, right? And so just like good friendship, it can be hard in this fallen world to find beautiful examples of the very good nature of headship and helper in Christian marriage. Anybody disagree with that? <laughs> can be hard to find that? Yeah, because marriage is under attack. Satan hates Christian marriage because of what it's supposed to reflect and image forth. So everything good, damaged by sin, there's so many distortions. Distortion is so easy. It's our default setting. Okay, we are bent and only by the power of the gospel is that bentness overcome. Okay, so for men, just do this quickly. We'll talk about it more next week. Who are, men, we're called to be Christ-like, sacrificial, servant-hearted, proactive, burden-bearing, courageous, honorable leaders. It's so easy to fall off the horse of Christ-likeness into the ditches of passivity and selfish abdication on one hand, or off the horse on the other side into the ditch of selfish domination. Throw your weight around to get your way. Or passive-aggressive. Avoid attack. Avoid attack. Avoid. And if those, you know, if that's pervasive, you can imagine where you just want to, whoa, if you associate that with headship, then I'd understand you'd run the other way. But that's not the original design. 
So we're bent only by the power of the gospel is that bentness overcome. Women are called to be Christ, at least in marriage, Christ-like helpers in Christian marriage, strong and intelligent, gracious and fearless, supportive and respectful of worthy leadership, never following their husband into sin. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. You have a prior allegiance, a allegiance that supersedes the one to him. But, again, so easy to fall off the horse of Christ-likeness. Jesus submitted to the Father into the ditch of a servile doormatism, codependence or whatever, or a brazen feminism, usurping of control, either actively or passively, manipulatively or whatever, on the other side. So I know I'm doing hasty generalizations here. Please don't say, well, but about the... Okay, I know, I know. We have to keep going. We'll talk about it a little bit more next week. But again, these distortions do not mean that the original design isn't beautiful and wise and good. So the answer, the renewal of marriage, is not in the leveling of roles, just doing away with them, the inherent sexual differences and roles. It's in their redemption and restoration to God's original very good design. So once again, thankfully, God hasn't left us to ourselves. We talked about how his friendship, this cosmic ultimate friend, befriending at the cross, enables us, empowers us, gives us grace to pursue friendship, Christian friendship, cultivating those relationships. Well, again, his ultimate act of love for his bride, servant-hearted, sacrificial, laying his life down for his bride, enables us as his people to cultivate marriages that reflect God's very good design. In fact, the life and death of Jesus declares that marriage is actually the meaning of the universe. This is just like, you know, preacher hyperbole. Um, what do I mean by that? It's the meaning of the universe. Well, look at verse 24, the meaning of marriage. Therefore, Moses kind of, well, Let's read it first here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, cleave to, cling to. Strong word here. Hold fast, emphasizing permanence. Hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So if you see what's going on here, in 2.18 to 23, there's the recounting of the original not goodness of being alone, and then this very good provision of a helper suitable for Adam bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. Then Moses, in a sense, what he does is he turns, so the quotations are done, and he turns to his readers and says, so this is why a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the origin of marriage. This is the genesis of marriage, God's very good design and gift to humanity. It's foundational bedrock institution of, of human society. And according to God's design... The man takes the initiative to start a new family unit. Do you see it? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So it's the man who leaves his father and mother to create this new family where this new covenantal bond actually supersedes. It takes priority over previous allegiances to his parents. Okay, now I'm not implying that there's no further allegiance or obligation to parents. It's just that the 
the woman, the wife, also becomes, or the wife alone, she alone, becomes one flesh with him. So their covenantal bond is this comprehensive union that just doesn't have any equal. It's only one person that he does that with, which starts to get us thinking about the definition of marriage. Okay, so what is marriage? This is important in our day and age in particular. So is marriage, is it getting a little warm in here now? No. Okay, good, because I'm getting a little warm, but it's probably those. So I know we're trying to figure out how to regulate the new AC system. Okay. Um, So what is marriage? How do we define it? Is it primarily a really close companion, you know, based on intense emotional connection? That's kind of the definition that's assumed in our society by and large. So that's typically referred to as the companionate or romantic view of marriage in you know, literature where these things are discussed. So I'll be the last one to say that romance and companionship are unimportant in marriage. They are extremely important. But if we define marriage only in this way, we're not only missing, at least downplaying, key components to God's good design originally, we end up in the mess we're in today with a redefinition of marriage, okay? So do you see how a romantic or companionate definition of marriage accords very comfortably with the redefinition of marriage that took place with Obergefell? So what's to keep you? In fact, let me, let me quote from um, Todd Wilson. I actually quoted from this book a couple of weeks ago. It's called Mere Sexuality, excellent book on a Christian vision of sexuality. What is marriage? Marriage is a one flesh union built on the sexual complementarity of male and female, a uniting of heart, mind, and body. And within this view of marriage, sex is intended to unite two lives and create new life. So only a man and a woman can become one flesh. Not a woman and a woman, not a man and a man. So Kevin DeYoung says it well. He says the ish, the man, and the isha, a woman, can become one flesh because theirs is not a sexual union but a reunion, the bringing together of two differentiated beings with one made from and both made for the other. So again, God's good design for our sexuality. There's only one way that our male and female complementary, complementary sexuality finds one flesh union. So this one flesh com- complementary union is intended to be monogamous and exclusive. Okay, so friendship obviously is different than marriage. The, the companionate view of marriage is not a whole lot different than good friendship. Okay, so friendship is different than marriage. So Um, but with friends, you don't share your body. At least you shouldn't, okay? So again, Wilson makes a wise comment here. He says, ironically, this restriction, not sharing your body with your friend, is what makes friendship special and beautiful. It's not a negative thing because it means we don't have to limit our friendships to only one person as we do in the case of a spouse. We can share our heart and mind with many people and we can enjoy friendship with many people. But the romantic, the companionate view of marriage has won the day. And with the redefinition of marriage to include same-sex couples, 
it shouldn't be surprising that most same-sex marriages are not exclusive. Okay, I'm not taking a cheap shot in saying that. Okay, there are studies and statistics to back that up. So, exclusive, and then finally, marriage is intended to be permanent. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, like super glue, to his wife. It's why Jesus commented on Genesis 2.24 by saying, this is Matthew 19.6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, it's that cleaving, let not man separate. So that's a, a definition of marriage, a one flesh union built on the sexual complementarity of male and female, a uniting of heart, mind, and body, exclusively and permanently, uniting two lives and creating new life, at least God willing. Obviously, there are all kinds of issues that can arise as a result of the fall and other issues, but generally speaking, that is definition of marriage. But what is the ultimate meaning of marriage? So we've defined it, but let's think about the ultimate meaning of marriage. And to find that out, we need to consider, you know, I made this crazy statement that the meaning of human history is, is a marriage. So we need to look at another place where Genesis 2.24 is quoted. It's quoted in Ephesians 5. So turn in your Bible to Ephesians 5. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 978, 979. So Paul, in this passage, verses 22 to 33, is laying out what Christian marriage looks like, the role of wife and husband, and how they ought to love each other. And then in verse 24... I'm sorry, in verse 31, he quotes Genesis 2.24. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24 that we've been looking at. And then he says this crazy, wonderful thing. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What does that mean? How did he get from Genesis 2.24 to saying this about how does it have to do with Christ and the church? So here, here's what it doesn't mean. God didn't make marriage between a husband and a wife and then say, oh, you know what? Look at that. That's such a, I think I'll pattern my relationship with my people after that. It's just such a great little illustration. It's actually the other way around, folks. God intended to show his never-stopping, like, sacrificial, humble, servant-hearted, like, to-the-end love for his people at the cross. Christ laying his life down for his bride, the church. He intended to do that. And in order to give a little parable, dramatic presentation, a little microcosmic version of it, he created marriage. Marriage is all about the love story. It's all about the gospel. 
That's the story it's supposed to tell. That's its meaning. That's its ultimate meaning. Because all of human history is ultimately about the marriage. Us, the wayward bride. And Jesus, the worthy husband, coming after us, laying his life down to win us to himself forever. So marriage is about the gospel. And so Christian husbands then and wives are to lean into their roles, not run from them, so that our marriages reflect the glory and the goodness and the good design of marriage. It's why infidelity is so heinous. It tells a lie about Jesus. So we keep our vows. We can keep our vows, our covenant, because we know he will always keep his. The ultimate marriage enables, empowers our marriages. He will never leave us or forsake us. We love because he first loved us. So the church can, the church should show the world what marriage is according to God's good design, God's goodness and wisdom and love. Do you see how important this is to God? Ultimacy invested in marriage. How much glory and dignity is invested in marriage? Is that vision important to you? It was not good for us to reject God's good design of headship and helper roles in Christian marriage. Creating this kind of beautiful marriage culture in the church is not going to be easy. And you know what? You can even, in some cases... Try with all your heart, and the other person can reject that vision, and it can end in wreckage and and heartbreak and everything. So I'm not saying this is going to be perfect, but what I am saying is there's a vision that the Bible lays out that we need to say, that is beautiful, it's going to be hard, but there's so much grace so that we can show the world what marriage is, how wise and good and loving God is, and show the glory of the gospel through our marriages because that's what they're supposed to image forth. That's what they're supposed to picture. It's right and good and beautiful. It's worth the effort. So do you believe it's worth the effort? Do you believe it's worth your effort personally? to press in and embrace this and work it out, whether you're married or whether you're single. To wrestle with what what does that look like for me? And I don't know what that looks like, but before God, prayerfully asking, don't let me throw up my hands, don't let me give up, Now, listen, I'm going to share a few thoughts here in summary on this point here, and we're, we're almost done. But the fact that these statements are brief does not mean that any of them are said flippantly without an idea of the difficulty, at least an idea of the difficulty that's wrapped up in each calling and life situation and the individual struggles that go along with each and are represented in this room, okay? So hear me here. Every Christian, every Christian, single, 
or married, divorced or widowed, happily married or in deep distress, every Christian struggling with sexual dysfunction or sexually satisfied, every Christian contentedly single or aching, every Christian heartily heterosexual or struggling with same-sex attraction, every Christian, if you are united to Christ by faith, Every Christian is headed for the happiest marriage of all time. In fact, you've already got the ring on your finger. The Spirit of God is the down payment, the promise that the wedding day is coming. You're betrothed, and we are waiting for the wedding day. And on that day, there will be no disappointment ever in this marriage. There will only be fullness of joy forever. So, single Christian, you can reflect that covenantal love directly by your fidelity to Jesus. Married Christian, you can reflect that capital M marriage in miniature in the way that you live out your earthly marriage, wanting to tell the truth about the gospel and not a lie. If you're in a situation now where you ache with longing to be married or you ache with longing to be happily married, lean into the fact that you are guaranteed to live happily ever after because you belong to Jesus. And you will have resources to pursue that whether it is reciprocated or not. So I know these are statements said in a summary form. And if we were sitting down for coffee, I would do a whole lot more listening and we would talk through some of the dynamics of it, okay? But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't speak the truth clearly as far as the beacon, the light that we say, that's the vision, that's what we want to head toward. Help us find that path. Shine the light on the path. So that's what these summary statements are. Let's lean in to the fact that we are guaranteed to live happily ever after because we belong to Jesus. And let's lean into our roles and not reject them. And if you're happily married, remember that the best earthly marriages are temporary shadows of the eternal substance. So finally and briefly here, nothing to hide. The last verse of the chapter here, chapter 2 of Genesis. And the man and his wife... We're both naked and we're not ashamed. So we'll say more about this next week because of how the fall ruined this. But we can at least say this was both literally true, <laughs> okay, as well as metaphorically true. 
okay? Which is why after the fall, they try to cover up. It's because of something deeper than just the skin issue, right? So the metaphorical dynamic is really important. I'm not importing this. The point was there was nothing to hide. There was no guilt. There was nothing about which to be ashamed. And that was all stolen in a moment. And we've been uncomfortable ever since. Dealing with shame ever since. Dealing with guilt ever since. And again, we'll say more about it next week. But for now, listen, this is a beautiful segue to the Lord's table. Because we all know our guilt and shame, right? For many of you, it may dog you every day. So if you, are, if you know your guilt and you don't know how to deal with it, you can come to Jesus and he can forgive your sin and cleanse you from all of that and make you new. You can just ask him to be your savior. You can do that today. But Christians also struggle with guilt, and we can be dogged by that as well. And so, Christian, listen, as you come to this table, this table says so loudly. In fact, it's a tactile, tangible, tasteable reminder that Jesus died for that guilt, that he was willingly humiliated and shamed in order to cover your shame that he shed his blood to cleanse us from the guilt and shame, to cover us with his atoning blood. In chapter 3, what did God do after they tried, you know, a pathetic attempt with the fig leaves? What did God do? Animal sacrifice, clothing. Hmm, that sounds like a pointer. Blood shed for covering. So Jesus died to cover us with his righteousness, to clothe, clothe us with honor instead of shame as God's beloved daughters and sons welcomed into his family. He was stripped naked so that we could be clothed. He was condemned as a guilty criminal for our guilt, not his own. So, Christian, as you come to the table this is his body, a reminder. This is his body broken for you. This is his blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of all that that means to deal with your guilt and your shame and all that that means to make us one with him so that we'll live happily ever after with him and with each other.